Who am I? Did you notice Moses asked that question? Chapter 3, verse 11. In some ways it's a simple question. You know, I'm David. But, but in other ways it's a complicated question. Where do I find my identity? What's my character? What's my personality? What factors shape the way I think about the world and how I respond to it? What things are important to me? They're big questions. It can be helpful to know the answers to these for relationships, for work, for leadership, because they help explain why we react the way we do to situations, to people. They help explain why we value and pursue certain things and why we get upset when we don't get them. It helps explain why we communicate in certain ways and what those strengths and weaknesses are. We were talking about some of these issues at our extended family dinner the other week. Uh, and the married kids were talking to the soon-to-be-married ones uh, about some of the personality tests that they'd found useful, uh, like the, the Myers-Briggs personality test. Perhaps you're, you're aware of that. Uh, it describes people according to whether they're introverts or extroverts, uh, whether they're observant or intuitive, whether they're thinkers or feelers, and then whether they're judges or perceivers. And when you sort of put all that together, there's 16 different combinations. Uh, and each of those sort of makes up a personality type that describes the way you relate to the world. Or, or maybe you've come across the Enneagram uh, system. Uh, it defines nine different personality types. Some of them are the perfectionist, the mediator, the thinker, a guardian, an achiever, and each of those is sort of defined by a core belief, something that shapes the way you see the world. Now, most people are a combination of two or more of those different personality types, and so the theory goes together, they make up a, a description of who you are. Now, those sorts of tools can be useful. Uh, they help us to live wisely in the world. But I want to suggest there's a more foundational question than who am I? And it's what we see in these chapters today in Exodus. And that's the question, who is God? Who is God? Pharaoh asked that question, chapter 5. Who is God? Uh, and who am I in relation to God? And so the question becomes not who am I, but whose am I? Who do I belong to? Uh, and that is what should ultimately shape how we relate to the world. Uh, that should influence our behaviour and the things that we do and say yes and no to that influences our actions. That's what really matters. Whose am I, not who am I? Well, let's crack into it. Chapter 3, Moses meets God. Do you remember where we finished last week? Uh, Moses has fled Egypt to Midian. He's married into this family of shepherds. That's what he's doing at the start of chapter 3. Uh, he's travelled to the far side of the desert, probably in search of food and water for the sheep. Uh, he ends up at Mount Horeb. Almost certainly that's another name for Mount Sinai. Uh, verse 2, he notices something unusual. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses heads over to take a closer look. Uh, but now, verse 4, it's God's turn to see something. Uh, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush... Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. 
A few puzzling things there, did you notice? On the one hand, it's the angel of God or messenger of God who appears in the flames. And yet at the same time, it seems to be God himself, or it is God himself, because he calls, God calls, to Moses from within the bush. So we're not quite sure how those two things fit together. And we're also not quite sure what to call God. Uh, We've got two different names there in verse 4. Did you see that? Uh, The Lord translates this Hebrew word Yahweh, which we'll soon see is God's personal name. Uh, And we're also told... uh, He's, he's called God, which translate, translates the Hebrew word Elohim. Now, that's just like a general name for God. Uh, any, any gods or, or even heavenly beings are called Elohim sometimes. So we've got these two names for God. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Verse 5, God warns Moses not to come any closer, to remove his shoes. He's on holy ground because God himself is there. And then he introduces himself. He's the God of Moses' father and of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Well, understandably, Moses is petrified, verse 6. But verse 7, God comforts him. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. Now, do you remember what we saw at the end of chapter 2 last week? Exactly that. Israel had cried out to God and he'd heard them. He'd remembered, he'd seen, and he was concerned. And now he's, uh, he's uh, restating that for Moses. But now he adds on to the end of that what that concern is going to look like, what the plan will be. Verse 8, he's going to rescue them. He'll bring them into out of Egypt and bring, bring them into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey, which on the one hand sounds kind of messy if that's the first time you've heard it, doesn't it? It sounds like an accident, but it's, a, it's really good. <laughs> it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now I'm sure Moses thinks all of that's a great idea until we get to verse 10, where God says, So now, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. (laughs) Well, hang on a minute. Hold the phone. Uh, It's been years since Moses has been back in Egypt, something like 40 years from what we can work out. And the last time he was there, his attempts to help his people didn't turn out quite so well. There was a murder. There was a price on his head. There was a quick escape. And it seems like those years have, have changed Moses. Have a look at his response there in verse 11. Who am I that I shall go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? That's the question. Who is Moses? What's shaped him? What matters to him? Who does he identify with? Is he Egyptian? Is he Israelite? Is he Midianite? He doesn't seem to be that sure. He calls his first son Gershom, which means foreigner. It is a question, though, that reflects his humility, doesn't it? It's part question and part excuse. Who who am I? He doesn't feel equipped for the task. I'm just a shepherd, a husband, a father. I'm not a leader, a rescuer, a warrior, a statesman. Uh, But God's answer to him is that none of those things matter. Verse 12, he says, I will be with you. What matters more than who am I is whose am I? 
God says, it's not about you, it's about me. Well, that doesn't seem to comfort Moses too much. His first question has been about his self-identity. His second question is about God's identity. Verse 13, who are you? Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, now human beings are the product of genetics and upbringing, of, of nature and nurture. Who we are today is a reflection, our character and our personality are a reflection of a whole range of things, our breeding, our upbringing, our our background, our surroundings. We develop, we change in response to all sorts of factors. But God's not like that. God just is. What's the hymn say? There is no shadow of turning to him. He he, he is. I am who I am. He is the origin of everything. Nothing influences him. He influences everything. Nothing will influence or change his character or the way he responds to situations. If he did the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram tests, he would just blow them up. They wouldn't compute. And he says to Moses, tell that to the Israelites. Tell them, I am has sent you. And then verse 15, we see God using his personal name. Yahweh, which is connected to I am, and there's a bit of debate about it, or lots of debate really, but uh, Yahweh means something like he is, not I am. God says I am. When you say who I am, you say he is. That's Yahweh. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, or, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I'm to be remembered. It's not about who you are, Moses. You ask the question, who am I? It's more about who I am, says God. Verse 16, that's what you tell the elders. And they'll listen. And then verse 18, more instructions. You and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, wants us to take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices. But he won't listen to you, verse 19, unless my hand compels him. And so that's what I'm going to do. My hand will compel him. Now, that sounds like a very thorough answer to Moses' doubts. Who shall I say is sending me? But it's not enough for Moses. Chapter 4, verse 1, we come up with question number 3. What if they won't listen? Now, God's already told him that they will listen. But Moses needs reassurance, and God, who is infinitely patient, provides it for him. I wonder how many of us parents are as patient with our kids. Uh, Verses 3 to 9, God provides three miracles, a set of miracles that will convince the people who Moses speaks to. His staff becomes a serpent, his hand becomes leprous, and then it's healed again. And then verse 9, he's told that if he pours some water from the Nile onto the ground, it will turn into blood. Another wonderfully complete answer to Moses' doubts. But it's still not enough. Uh, We come to question number four, verse 10 of uh, chapter four. But I'm not much of a public speaker. 
And have a look at God's answer uh, in verse 11. It's a question of his own. Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now, that's not quite what I thought it said when I had a closer look. He's not... He's saying, Moses... I agree with you. You are not much of a public speaker. I've made you that way. I make people blind. I make people deaf. I make you not much of a public speaker. I agree with you. But that's exactly the way I've made you. I'm not going to change you. Here's my answer to that. I will help you speak. It's not about who you are, Moses. It's about who I am. Trust me, just as you are. Well, that should have been enough, I would have thought. Uh, But no, Moses comes back with excuse number five, verse 13. It's quite funny, isn't it, if it wasn't so sad? Oh, Lord, please send someone else. Uh, And finally, God's patience runs out. Verse 14, we're told, Yahweh's anger burned against Moses. Did you know this is the first time that the Bible describes God being angry at someone? Look, I would have thought in the the previous 54 chapters, Genesis and the start of Exodus, there would have been plenty of people who did more than Moses did here, who deserved God's anger, and yet this is the first time the scriptures say that God was angry at someone. But notice what he does in his anger or after his anger. He shows Moses great compassion and patience and provides him even more help. Verse 14, your brother Aaron, he's a good speaker. You speak to him and he'll be your mouthpiece. How about that? And it finally seems Moses has run out of questions, out of excuses. God has the last word. Moses heads home, he packs up his family and he heads off. Jump down to verse 21. Moses meets God again. Perhaps it's on the road between Midian and Egypt. And God warns Moses, perform all the wonders I've given you to do, but don't forget, they're not going to work. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then he says to him, verse 22, here's what you're to tell Pharaoh. This is what Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. It's a warning about a prophecy, really, about the the Passover. Now, it finishes with that threat. And I think perhaps that's what we, we focus on. But just imagine that you're the son of a father who is as protective of you as God is here. That would be a wonderfully comforting thing, wouldn't it? Uh, This is the God who jealously defends and protects his children and watch out anyone who wants to harm them. We learn something about Israel as well. We learn something about God who jealously defends. We learn something about Israel. Who, Who are they? Well, they're God's firstborn son, his children. They're precious. 
It's the first hint of a theme that, that develops as we go through the Bible about what it means to be children of God. We'll come back to it in a moment. But, but let's move on because in this meeting between God and Moses, there's an even more puzzling and intriguing scene. Uh, look down in verse 24. Uh, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Now, I've got a number of Exodus commentaries, you know, it takes up about this much room on my bookshelf and I read what each of them said about these few verses and just cut a long story short, no one really knows for sure, like everyone's taking a bit of a punt uh, and even the NIV, if you're reading along on an NIV, it, uh, it actually adds Moses in a couple of places in these square brackets where the Hebrew actually just says him, so there's some things we don't know. Uh, we're not sure if, if God is about to kill Moses. It just says God was about to kill him. We, perhaps it was Moses' son. Uh, we don't actually know whose feet are touched. Uh, that also just says uh, him. And we, don't, we can't quite work out how Zipporah knew there was a problem to begin with so that she could perform this remedy. I do actually suspect there's a connection between this paragraph and the previous one, which sort of has these two ideas of uh, a firstborn son being killed, um, and here we've got a, another threatened sort of uh, son, uh, a threatened killing of a son. I can't quite make the connection between that paragraph and this one, but have a think about it. If you've got any ideas, let me know. But here's one possible scenario that was sort of the best one I, I read in, in all these commentaries, and, and I think it fits quite well. So they're travelling on the way. Moses, or perhaps his son, gets really sick, is close to death. Zipporah makes the connection uh, between uh, what's happened, one, someone's really sick, and uh, one of the sons, maybe the second one, hasn't been circumcised uh, in obedience to God's command. And so she, so she circumcises the son, and then she touches possibly Moses' feet or her son's feet, whoever's sick, and shows the connection, that she's made the connection between the sickness and the, the spiritual problem of the failure to circumcise. And God says, OK, you've received the message uh, and Moses gets better. Uh, God, uh, that, that's the best I can come up with. So what do we learn? Well, I'm not sure, but I am wondering whether it is connected with this theme of Moses' identity. Who, who is Moses? He's wondering whether he's Egyptian or Hebrew or Midianite. Uh, for some reason, one of his sons wasn't circumcised uh, and identified with God's covenant people. Uh, and God wants him to identify, to, to, to put, you know, he's all in for, for God's people. He wants to commit to the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. And so that's the message that he sends and, and Moses receives it, or at least Zipporah receives it. And now he, he, his family is right and he's, he's got the sign of God's, uh, Abraham's covenant. 
and he's ready to go. That's who he is. He's, he's God's man uh, from God's people. So verse 27, 28, uh, he, he continues the journey. He meets Aaron, who's, who's come out from Egypt, uh, and uh, tells him everything uh, that God says. They go back to Egypt, they meet the elders, uh, and they believed, uh, and they worshipped God, which is a great finish. Uh, that brings us to the next meeting. Chapter 5 begins, Aaron meets Pharaoh. It doesn't go quite so, so well. And uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, Moses goes to, to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Now that's not exactly what they were told to say. And they were also told to take the elders with them. And they didn't seem to do that either. Now... I don't know, is this a problem? I'm not quite sure. Um, But it doesn't make any difference, does it? Because God has already said that that Pharaoh's not going to let them go, so it's sort of hypothetical, really, whether they're doing exactly what they were told to do or not, because God's already said Pharaoh won't let them go, and he won't. Verse 2, he asks the question, Who is the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And I will not let Israel go. And now we get to the key question. We've begun with the question, who is Moses? And we've finished with, who is the Lord? Now the answer to that question is going to come up up, up in the next four or five chapters as we work through the, the plagues. Pharaoh's going to learn who God is and, and who he has power over. Uh, and, and all of those are designed to teach Pharaoh who Yahweh is and, and that's what we'll look at next week but just for the moment we're going to stop here and, and return to that question we began with who am I? who am I? Uh, we can ask the psychologists and, and we'll get one answer and they can give us some useful tools to, to know ourselves and to deal with life but we can also use those answers as an excuse I think Uh, when it comes to making decisions about what we will and won't do in the world. Uh, We see an opportunity and we say to ourselves, I couldn't possibly do that. I'm a feeler. I'm not a thinker. Or I'm an introvert, not an extrovert. Someone else will do it. Or we say, don't expect me to be nice and help people. I'm an achiever. Just put me in charge of something. I scored low on being a guardian or a mediator. Don't make me deal with people. We might add other excuses. We might say, I'm the product of a broken home. That's just the way I am. I'm living with chronic pain. That's why I'm irritable. I shouldn't have to apologise. He was mean to me first. It's about time I looked after myself for a change. I've spent enough years looking after other people. It's time to be a little bit of selfish, uh, to be a little selfish. I couldn't do that. That's not my spiritual gift. I did a test and it said, I'm not good with that, so I'm not going to do it. This is what Moses did, isn't it? I couldn't possibly do that. Who am I? I'm a stranger in a foreign land. I'm a fugitive. I'm caught between three cultures. What if they won't listen? I'm poor of speech. 
But what we've learned from these chapters of Exodus is that what's more important is who you belong to. God has said that the nation of Israel is his firstborn son and that he'll jealously guard her and he'll take them to be his own people and be their God. That's who they are. And that's even more true for us, isn't it? Who are we? We're not just a nation who's a son, but each of us individually are sons and daughters of God our Father. John chapter 1, verse 12, we read, Yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That's who you are. That's your fundamental identity. You are God's child. You're not primarily an extrovert or an individualist or an optimist. You're a child of God. What does that mean? Romans 8 said that we have received the spirit of God's son, which makes us sons. We, plural, male and female, we are sons because we have the spirit of God's son. Those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, by the spirit of Jesus in us, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs. Notice what it means to be sons. You're not a slave to fear. God is our Father. His Spirit is in us. We don't need to fear Him. We don't need to fear anything else. Your future is certain. You have an inheritance waiting. You are not defined by your past or your personality or by your limitations. You are defined by God, your Heavenly Father. And he calls you to live out your family resemblance to him. He calls you to be perfect as he is perfect. Jesus puts it like that in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus says you are to love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven who sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. We love our enemies because our Father loves his enemies. Jesus says, forgive as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. Matthew chapter 6. Live out your sonship. You are defined by Jesus who has given you the right to become his children, to become God's children. His spirit empowers you to follow him, to take up your cross, to conquer sin, to love your enemies. His spirit gives you the power to do more than the strengths of your personality type suggest that you're capable of doing. And so who are you? Well, you're a child of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to see you. Help us to know ourselves, not in relation to what the world says about us, or what we say about ourselves, but in what you say about who we are. 
what your word says about us. Might we reflect that through the power of your spirit, for the glory of your Son. Amen.